0: It's Thursday, November 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Cases of coronavirus continue to surge across the country, and records are being set. Texas just became the first state to hit one million cases, and the country set a record Tuesday for the amount of hospitalizations. That is a particularly concerning point, especially in rural areas, where they have fewer intensive care beds and sometimes have to transfer patients. Melanie Evans, hospital reporter of the Wall Street Journal, joins us for record hospitalizations. Next, President Trump still refuses to concede the election and it is holding up the Biden transition. Despite no evidence of widespread fraud, 70% of Republicans say they didn't believe the election was free or fair. And now, some Republican Party officials and leaders are also joining the call that the elections were stolen. David Siders, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Finally, when it comes to jobs, women have been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. More than two million women have dropped out of the labor force as of October. And one of the big reasons is that virtual schooling is causing moms to quit. Having to make tough decisions about paying for childcare or working, many women with school-aged children are staying home. Heather Long, economics correspondent at the Washington Post, joins us for how the pandemic has hit working women. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in.
1: Not that
2: there hasn't been, you know, appreciation uh, that we're here, and we're certainly appreciative of all the support they're giving us so that we can learn their mission as well. Um, But it was honestly too busy to feel a huge difference because there's just so many people working so hard inside.
0: Joining us now is Melanie Evans, hospital reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Melanie.
3: Thanks
1: for having me.
0: We're seeing cases rise again for COVID-19. For example, Texas just became the first state to surpass 1 million coronavirus cases. But one of the truer markers of how bad this thing gets is hospitalizations. We're always looking at people that get sick enough that they have to be hospitalized. And with the first big waves of the pandemic, it was a a strain on the hospital system. And we're starting to see that again. We hit record numbers of hospitalizations uh, just this week. So, Melanie, tell us a little bit about the numbers and how really this is affecting the rural areas a lot more severely again. As you said,
3: hospitalizations in the United States of COVID-19 patients hit 61,964, which is a new record for the United States in the pandemic. The prior record was in April, and if you remember the April surge, predominantly hit New York and New Jersey and California. There was a surge in the summer which reached about the same peak as April, that really hit across the South and the West. you were looking at Florida and Texas and Arizona predominantly. So what's notable this time is not just that the numbers are larger, but that the cases and hospitalizations are far more widespread. And as you said, it's reaching kind of more remote rural parts of the country. What's notable about those rural communities is that they're often served by smaller hospitals. Rural communities historically have had a little more trouble recruiting Mm. medical professionals to their communities. Rural hospitals tend to have fewer beds, they may not even have an ICU. I've spoken with rural hospitals this week that have no ICU, have no ventilators and actually use some of their beds routinely. as a functioning nursing home. So as cases rise in these communities, there are just fewer resources on hand to meet surging demand.
0: And speaking of resources, one of the interesting things is the demand for healthcare workers in a lot of these places where they might be short staffed or something, there's this kind of roving pool of healthcare workers that go from state to state to help and kind of make up the difference. But that's also an issue too with these cases so widespread, it's tough to kind of allocate these resources.
3: It is definitely a challenge that several people pointed out to me as I was reporting the story, which is in disasters that we've encountered previously. So if you think of hurricanes or fires, tornadoes, you have a a disaster that is somewhat localized, which means that you can look elsewhere, look to communities and states that haven't been hit and ask for help. The problem is that with a very widespread wave and surge of coronavirus cases and hospitalizations, it's much harder to send help because you need those workers yourself.
0: So we're getting a lot of people, a lot of younger people who are getting infected with this, but while they are spared some of the most severe symptoms of this often, you know, not in all cases, they're starting to transmit this to family members, co-workers, other people that are at higher risk. So this pandemic fatigue of being on lockdown and so many restrictions is starting to wear on a lot of people. You know, they're seeing that it's spreading in your closer circles basically.
3: We hit record hospitalizations this week. But in the last week we've also seen record numbers of cases. The issue there is that hospitalizations typically lag cases by a few weeks. So while we're at a record now, there's this approaching number of additional hospitalizations that are kind of widely anticipated because of the current case counts. And so when we were reporting and talking to public health officials, they talked about that pandemic fatigue and they talked about sort of the basic measures that everyone is struggling with, which is, you know, sort of keeping your distance, not gathering indoors, and wearing your mask in order to prevent the spread of the virus.
0: Last thing I just wanted to ask is just kind of how hospitals are adapting, you know, they're clearing out certain space to make space for COVID patients. And we've been talking about these rural hospitals that sometimes they'll have to transfer patients to larger hospitals. You know, there's a lot going on.
3: We saw it first in New York where they very quickly converted space into kind of Uh, new intensive care units and hospitals that I'm talking to now in Montana are finding new spaces for additional beds. They're putting them in physical therapy gyms, they put them in offices, they've taken single occupancy rooms and they've added an extra bed. They've leased a building from a local nursing home. They're looking for more space because they expect more cases. There's a lot of effort to try to keep patients in the hospital, but We've also seen temporary hospitals in surges I reported earlier this year on a surge in Southern California and they stood up a temporary hospital. The issue there is that they tend to be for patients that aren't as severely ill and the real bottleneck takes place for those most critically ill patients where they need to be in a hospital if the hospital doesn't have the bed it becomes a race to transfer them.
0: Melanie Evans, hospital reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks
1: so much. The whole Republican Party has been put in a position with a few notable exceptions of uh, um,
0: being um, mildly intimidated by the sitting president. Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico, Thanks for joining us, David.
2: Hey, good to be here.
0: President Trump continues to fight the election outcome. Obviously, he's got a bunch of lawsuits in a bunch of different states. And at first, when this kind of started out, he's been laying the groundwork for this for so long before the election even happened. But now we're seeing a lot of Republican officials, people in the leadership even, kind of jumping on board, saying that the election was stolen. There's a lot of fraud, despite there being evidence of this. I mean, that's the main thing. They haven't been able to produce any significant evidence of widespread fraud. And they're not really gaining any traction anymore. But the constant calls for this are starting to make headway in a lot of Republican circles. So, David, tell us what you're hearing about this.
2: It's two things, right? One is what you point out, that it's not making much headway. So, really, this should be viewed as an alternate reality right now. It's not It's not what's likely to succeed in the courts, right? The rulings already have not been moving in their way in any you know, encouraging way for Republicans. And the likelihood of recounts succeeding in any of these states, a you know, recount usually moves a result a few hundred votes, not a few thousand and they need many thousands. So the alternate reality though is significant because it's the one engulfing the Republican Party right now. And it has the blessing of leadership and the base is is right there. And so, yeah, on the one hand, Rudy Giuliani in a parking lot next to a sex shop and a crematorium is kind of funny and almost comical. But on the other, you have 70% of Republicans saying that they don't think the election was free and fair. And that is a huge number of Americans, you know, many, many millions who voted Republican, who are questioning our democracy. And that's a serious deal.
0: I did want to talk about Georgia specifically, because that's such an important state in all of this. They just announced that they're going to be doing an audit of the presidential race. They're going to do a hand recount and re They're going to do it all at once. But in addition, they also have two Senate runoff races And the two Republican senators there, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, have demanded that the Republican secretary of state from Georgia resign because of all the stuff that's been going on there. So these are two top members in a very important state calling for the resignation of a Republican secretary of state just because of all this mess.
2: Yeah, and there is no room for dissent in in the party if you congratulate the president-elect for being the president-elect that's not good for the base. It's good to fight against. And I think there's some cleverness here too. I mean, part of it is very tactical. You want to appear to be defending Trump if you're a Republican because you want Trump in Georgia to help with those Senate races. That's the calculation there that's just very above board and tactical. The the other one is the reason Trump or one of the reasons Trump is president is because of this very effective argument, not just against Democrats or the media, but against institutions and This idea that establishment and science and the academy and and the media, you know, all of this is corrupt and working against the grain of conservatism, I guess. And so that's part of this fight, right? So if you heard the Republican saying the secretary of state, you know, get out, you you won or you came in ahead anyway in these elections, but (laughs) say that the election was fraudulent because you can't trust the system. That's, I think, a resonant argument with this base.
0: One of the other interesting attempted arguments is uh, talking about the polls and the media, obviously, and the media calling the race. But, you know, they're trying to say the polls were off so much. And because the polls were off, that means the elections were wrong also.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of arguments there, too, right? One is that Trump says these were suppression polls because his argument is they were intentionally meant to make Republicans not turn out. It's just not the truth. The pollsters didn't do a great job this year. And I think what they have found is that it's really, really hard to poll around Trump. But... Trump also had tremendous turnout. It's not like he had a turnout problem in this election. He got many millions more votes this time than he did in 2016. So I don't think he had a problem there. The other part of that is, you know, who calls the results? I mean, give me a break. This is a president who said, I want to know the results on election night. Well, there's no way that states certify on election night. It takes them weeks. It's in this country. Then the the media that does these projections and then you know they find out if they're right or wrong right when the states certify and it <laughs> right. turns out they're right they know how to do this um, so and I, I, there have been times that i think in the midterms the ap called back a house race maybe maybe in california so yeah there have been times but <laughs> by and large for more than a you know, hundred years the media has gotten this right
0: tell me about these certifications and these dates when they're coming up
2: those dates are significant given the talk about could we possibly get in there and muck things up before results are certified. Rick Hassan, the law professor who studies this stuff, I think he called it uh, would require three Hail Marys in a row or something. And it would because most of the certification processes are prescribed by law. And we live in a kind of weird year where you have headlines in places like Pennsylvania saying governor and lawmakers say they will follow state law and award votes to the popular vote winner. That's a weird headline to have. And yet that's the kind of news that this uncertainty and and chatter is is about. So it's mostly talk, I think. There's not a great avenue for them politically, but talk matters. And I, I think that's what Democrats are hoping to get beyond past that certification date.
0: David Siders, National Political Correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Hey, thank you.
1: Basically, as schools started up again, and many of them were hybrid or virtual distance learning, whatever you want to call it, it wasn't working for families. And the person who had to end up generally doing this was the mom.
0: Joining us now is Heather Long, economics correspondent at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks for having me. Wanted to keep in on the progress with the economy throughout the coronavirus pandemic And one of the things that we're seeing from the last bit of numbers, this is coming from October numbers, is that more than two million women had dropped out of the labor force as of October. And the percentage of women working is the lowest since 1988. And one of the big reasons they think is going on with this is because of the uncertainty of schools across the country and kids having to continue to learn at home and doing this online schooling. This pandemic recession, I love the term, has been dubbed the she-session because it's hurting men far worse in this respect. And as I mentioned, schooling is a big part of this. I think some of the numbers show that women with school-age children definitely haven't returned back to the labor force. So, Heather, help us walk through some of these numbers and figure this all out.
1: This was dubbed the She Session, as you put it, over the summer. And initially, that made sense. We just look around our own communities. We could see a lot of these restaurants emptying out, hotels, entertainment, hair salons, places that tended to employ more women, and particularly women of color, than men. And so it wasn't a huge surprise that we saw initially women get harder hit. But what you're talking about, what really piqued my interest, is what happened in September, we started to see this big divergence between men and women in September. And what happened is basically as schools started up again, and many of them were hybrid or virtual distance learning, whatever you want to call it. It wasn't working for families. And the person who had to end up generally doing this was the mom. And so there, as you pointed out, the fewest women working since 1988, we saw over 800,000 women drop out of the labor force. So they stopped working or stopped looking for a job in September alone. And when October rolled around, sometimes you think, oh, was that just a fluke, one month fluke? Nope. Nope. When October rolled around, men, particularly dads, had basically fully gained any of their losses from September, which were much, much less steep. And when moms, women, are still very much struggling to get back to work and get back to jobs.
0: And you spoke to a bunch of women on this particular thing, and they had a lot of tough decisions to make. You can pay for child care, but in a lot of cases, people were saying, well, it just doesn't outweigh the cost. I mean, I will probably make less going out and working and paying more for somebody to take care of the children rather than just doing it myself. And, And that was a lot of what you were hearing.
1: And it's heartbreaking. I was thinking of an unemployed woman. I spoke to Courtney Allen in upstate New York, substitute teacher, lost her job like many in the spring, and she desperately needs the money. These unemployment payments, she still receives them, but it's barely enough to cover her rent. And she's got a kindergartner and a first grader, two young boys, one of whom has the ADD, ADHD, which makes it even harder to sit there on a computer all day and learning. And she said to me, I I have no good options. I need the money. I need to go back to work. But who's going to watch my kids? My kids right now are in a program that is distance learning. And so it's a terrible situation to be in. And we're hearing that over and over again.
0: And so what's happening now is a lot of people are hoping for more stimulus to be approved by Congress. So this money could either be used for childcare services or just continue supporting the families. And it's really important because women that take time off for child care and all that stuff. Historically, it's harder for them to get back into the workforce after you've been out of it for some time. So that's another issue. I, I, you know, we talk about the constant effects of the pandemic. And, you know, men seem to take more of it on the health side. They're getting sicker in more severe cases and dying in in higher numbers. But on the economic side, it's harder for women to recover that way.
1: It definitely is. And unfortunately, we have a lot of good data on this from the past Great Recession and from the past really 20 years. And what we found over and over again is when women take a year off to watch children, it has severe repercussions for their careers. It's not only harder to get back in, but they almost never earn as much money as they did before. They have lower social security, lower retirement savings. So it just compounds for the rest of their life in a very negative way. So this is both a real pain for these families like Courtney Allen's who are struggling financially right now, but it's also a detractor overall for the U.S. economy. Ultimately, our economy grows when we have more workers and we've been trying to get more women into the workforce. The United States already before the pandemic lagged well behind countries like Canada, Germany, even Japan, and how many women we have working. So we were already way behind. Now we're even further back.
0: Heather Long, economics correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.